We are in Romans chapter 7, verse 1 through 6. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which has held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This is the very word of God. We were having dinner last night with a few friends, and I asked a question um, that I've been thinking about, I think about quite a bit, and that was, uh, if you could live anywhere, anywhere in the country, where would you pick? Where would you want to live? So we were kicking that around, having fun, thinking about other places. Nobody says Oklahoma usually when that question is asked. Um, Although, you know, I always have to say, of course, that Oklahoma is the best place to live because when you go on vacation, it's an immediate upgrade. So this is about as good as it gets right here. Um, uh, sorry, sorry. But h- here's the thing. Here's the thing. And we know this even from what we just experienced together. Uh, you, you could live anywhere, but really what makes life meaningful and what makes life wonderful is really the relationships, isn't it? It's the people that you know, the people that you live life with. It's not so much about the destination that you call home. It's about the people that you call family. When the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans, he began with uh, a thesis statement. One that we, of course, have talked about many times, and I just want to, again, bring it into our intention as we move into chapter 7. The Apostle Paul said that he is not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation. Now, that word, salvation, is the kind of word that um, doesn't seem to land on people the way I think Paul knew it would land on his original audience. When we think about the word salvation, a lot of people check out. They're not thinking in terms of a religious word like salvation. So when we were in Romans chapter 6, the previous chapter for the last two weeks, uh, we saw that that chapter was kind of concentrating on the practical effects of our justification by union with Christ. What does it mean for us that we are united to Christ who has himself been vindicated, justified, proven to be in the right, proven to be righteous by his death and his subsequent resurrection? What does it mean that you and I are 
united to this justified, vindicated, and very much alive Messiah. It means in chapter 6 that God does not intend to leave us enslaved to sin and to the death it brings. Sin is a power. Sin is a, a, a force over all of us that we know is powerful because of the reality of death. Now, when we talk like that, of course, that there's a moral concern there. God's justification of sinners is not to be isolated from God's sanctification of sinners, his, his transforming of sinners. That's what Paul was focused on in chapter 6. But it is more than that. It is more than that. And, and we're not seeing the gospel in all its glory if all we see is that God is in the business of forgiving our moral wrongs. Now, I don't want to diminish that truth at all. I just want us, as we're studying the book of Romans together, to see more than this. So when you read a verse like the last one in chapter 6, Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't want us to think mainly of the option between an impersonal place like heaven or hell. I want us to think of the option more like being married to a spouse that gives you grief and misery or being married to a spouse that gives you joy and endless delight. Salvation, to be justified, is not simply a matter of a new destination. It is a matter of a new relationship, a relationship that makes all the difference for the everyday realities of life. The gospel that Paul proclaimed is the announcement that in Christ we've been granted first the end of a relationship, second the beginning of a new relationship. And then third, the promise of life. Life like you really want. Life that you were meant for. Life that you dream about. This is the good news of the gospel. And Paul begins to kind of show us this in these first six verses in chapter 7. The end of a relationship. That's what we're given in the gospel. The beginning of a new relationship. And then the promise of the realization, in fact, of the life that we truly want. So let's look at these three things together this morning. First, before you can get to that life that you want, the life that God intends for us, you've you got to go through a breakup. <laughs> you've got, you got to have a relationship ended. And, and this is actually a gift, a gift that we've been given in the gospel of Jesus. So Paul says here in Romans chapter 7, verse 1, do you not know? He's writing to Christians. He's writing to believers in Christ. And he says, do you not know that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Now, let's make sure we're clear on this. The law that Paul is referring to is not laws in general. It, it, it refers to the Mosaic law. 
It's this law in particular which Paul has said only occasioned the increase of sin, Romans 5.20. We'll get more into this over the next two weeks as we go through a pretty challenging chapter, Romans chapter 7, let's be honest. This is a chapter where Paul's going to deal with, well, what about the Torah? What about that old covenant? What about the law that God gave through Moses to Israel What's our relationship to that law? He's starting that, and he's already told us in chapter 5 that the law, when it came in, did not relieve sin. It only exacerbated it. It only increased it. It is this law which Paul has said, shockingly, is on the side of sin and death and provides no access to righteousness and life. So again, in the previous chapter, Paul dealt with the problem of sin in the Christian life. But the only thing that he said about the law in chapter 6 is in verse 14, Romans 6, 14, where he says that the Christian is not under law, but under grace. Now, what did he mean by that? We we took a little bit of a stab at it last week, but here in chapter 7, he's come back to that. What do I mean when, when, what does Paul mean when he says you're not under law, but under grace? Now, we can guess that much of what he has said about our relationship to sin is what he will say about our relationship to the law. So Romans 6, 2, we have died to sin. So does that mean we've died to the law? We've been set free from sin, Romans 6.22. So does that mean that we've been set free from the law? Now, the problem here is that if we move too quickly and say yes to that question too quickly, we will find ourselves right back to the very problem that Paul has to deal with in chapter 6, verse 1. If we reject the law of God like we ought to reject the power of sin, that will only make us lawless and enslaved to sin. It'd be a vicious cycle. The relationship that you and I have as New Testament believers to the law, to the Old Testament, to the Mosaic law, needs a little bit more nuance than simply to say that we should resist it in the same way that we resist sin. So to see the nuance, Paul gives to us a fairly easy-to-grasp illustration in verses 2 and 3. But we need to interpret the illustration from the perspective of the Jewish law, from the Torah, not from any modern sensibilities, not from what you and I would like to think about an issue like marriage and divorce and relationships like that. Old Testament law. We're talking just about the Mosaic law. We're talking about your, your Old Testament in your Bibles is quite clear, as Paul says here, that a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. That, that's what the Old Testament code says. You just have to open your Bible and read it to see that that's correct. So, If she goes and lives with another man while her husband is still alive, she's rightly called an adulteress. And again, I say rightly because that's what the Torah teaches. That's what Paul's operating from. A a woman married to a man, according to Old Testament law, belongs to the man as long as he lived. In fact, Paul is quite explicit. At the end of verse 2, the phrase, the law of marriage in the ESV, is literally 
the law of the husband. So in the Old Testament, in the Torah, in the Mosaic Code, the law was on the husband's side in a marriage. Deuteronomy 20, verse 4, it was only a man that had the rights to divorce. A woman couldn't divorce. She was literally bound by law to the law of her husband. So that, that's where we're operating from. Are you with me? That, that's what we're talking about. Paul's using this as an illustration. And the reason he does that, the reason he's talking like that, is to probably make you feel some, the way some of you might feel right now. He wants you to feel like you are under a massive burden. It's like feeling you are trapped and have no way out. The law increased sin and could never relieve it. So like a married Jewish woman, if you gave in to your longing to be with someone else who would make your life better, you would actually end up being shamed all the more. A scarlet A emblazoned on your chest. The only way out, according to the law, according to the Old Testament code, the only way out is death. If your husband were to die, his power over you would be gone in an instant and you would be free to marry someone else, no shame at all. So the reason Paul has given this illustration right here Again, remember what we're trying to see. He's not talking about marriage. He's using it as an illustration for something else. He gives this illustration to heighten the sense of expectation that he wants you to have from the simple statement in verse 1. The law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. So if you're bound to a wonderful, wonderful spouse, the binding is a blessing. But if not, this binding is indeed a bondage, and news of your spouse's death turns out to be a a day of great relief and anticipation of new life if you're under the Old Testament law. In other words, Paul simply wants to say, imagine what death does in that scenario. It, It breaks even the strongest of bonds, the marriage bond, the kind of bond that you had no way out of without bringing yourself even more shame and condemnation. But if the bond it breaks is a burden to you, then death, as horrific as death is, would actually be a blessing. It would open a world of possibilities that you probably thought would never come. Okay, so just think of it, just think of it more like this. Maybe some of you can relate to this a little bit more. Um, losing your job would be very unsettling. Some of you have experienced that. That's happened to me twice. And it's scary. But it also, in my particular case, led to something far better every time. It's that sense that your longings and fantasies for something better now have a legitimate way to come to fruition. Death holds that kind of tragic but also anticipatory power. It creates a whole new situation for those who go through it. So now, Paul draws his punch in verse 4. He tells us, The good news that in our union with Christ, the binding power of the law, of the Old Testament law, 
has been broken. A new day has dawned, a a day filled with anticipation and hope, as well as mystery and curiosity, because it's the start of a new relationship. And it's exciting. Paul uses, in verse 4, for the second time in this short paragraph, paragraph, he uses the personal address, my brothers. My brothers and sisters. It's like sometimes we talk to each other and say, brother, sister. He's using this personal address because he wants to press home the importance of this now present reality and its implications and possibilities for every moment of your life. How has this new day dawned? He says it's by the fact that we have died to the law through the body of Christ. In other words, a real death has occurred and it has set in motion a whole new reality for us. So who was it that died? It was Christ who died. But but this death has enormous ramifications for us and our relationship to the law, to the Old Testament. For one thing, because of our union with Christ, his literal death that we confessed in the creed, crucified under Pontius Pilate in time and space, in history, his literal death is a death for us as well. He says, you also have died, in verse 4. To be identified with Christ in his death means not only that the condemnation of the law has been vanquished, but that the law itself as a power, as an authority over us, has lost its grip. We are no longer under the law. But notice, it's not because we divorced it. It's not because we declared ourselves emancipated from it. You can't do that, you know. That's the point of his illustration. The law is that binding on you. It takes a death. And it's because you have died in Christ's death that you've been set free. If you're going to be set free from the Old Testament law, you have to die. And in Christ. You have. That's what he's trying to say. Now, of course, we have to explain how is it that we have died when, in fact, it was Christ who died. And here, the only explanation is the word substitution. Christ died in my place. He died for us. The fact that his death counts as our death is explainable only as a matter of God's mercy and grace. It can only be explained by love, by the free, sovereign will of God who gave his own son to die for us while we were his enemies. By the way, I know, of course, that the illustration seems to have broken down because you're waiting for the husband to die, but then Paul says, you died. So remember, he's just using this as an illustration to help us feel the weight of what it means to be under the law, a weight that can only be lifted when there's a death. So now, why did Christ die? Why did he do this for us? Why did he die in our place? Now, I just said it was love. Romans 5 tells us it's the greatest act of love has ever been. He didn't just die for a righteous person. He didn't just die for friends. He died for enemies. But love itself is not enough of an explanation. We must ask, what was love's motive why you, you can't just say Jesus died for us because he loved us. That's, that's not enough. 
what was love aiming at? What was it trying to do? And here we must recall that he died for us not only when we were his enemies, but also when we were enslaved to a different spouse whose oppressive power over us is known all too keenly. He died for us, Paul says here at verse 4. Romans 7, 4 is an amazingly powerful verse. He died for us, look what it says, so that, here's the motive, do you see it? He died for us so that you may belong to another. We were not independent when we were hostile to him. And his love for us in that condition was not aimed at making us independent of him. He died for us in order to free us so that we could be rightfully, shamelessly, gloriously united to someone else. So, when Christ dies on the cross for us in our place, it's because of love, yes, but love that aims at freeing us from an abusive spouse, an abusive power over us, yes, but a love that aims to unite us. So his love for us, God's love for us in Christ, think of it, think of it, brothers and sisters, could not simply be a love of compassion and sympathy. God's love for us is not like the maid of honor who is at the wedding, well, for many reasons, but partly to stand there and beam and smile at the bride and to say, I am happy. Here's my best friend. She has found the one for her. Isn't this great? That's not what God's love for you is like. For what could God's love for us be if he stood by beaming only to see us marry again into another abusive spouse? So why did he die for us? He did it out of love, set us free from an abusive relationship. But notice, he did it in order to unite us to someone with whom we could enjoy a wonderful, exhilarating relationship. He died for us in order that we could be married to another. His love for you and me is the love of committing himself to us. He did not die to make you single. He died to unite you, to bring you into union with someone that is better than any marriage relationship has ever been, which is, of course, the reason why marriage ends when the kingdom of God has fully come. Because it's just a picture of the better marriage, and God will leave no one ununited. He died in order to bring you into a covenant relationship with himself. So just side note, brothers and sisters, marriage, marriage here among brothers and sisters is an important truth. It's a glorious thing. We should rejoice in it, but it's not the most important thing. You're here today and you're not married. Don't God, the, this is the greater story, isn't it? This is the greater message. God will leave no one out. He unites us all to himself in a covenant relationship. And I want you to see who this spouse is. Just look at it. Notice how he is described. Who is the one that he unites us to? The one to whom we are meant to belong. Look what he says. 
It's not just him. It's not just Christ, but it's him who has been raised from the dead. Now let that sit in for just a moment. To be raised from the dead, we know in the Bible is not simply a matter of coming back to life after you've previously died. That's simply not what resurrection in the Bible means. It means that one has come back to life having conquered death, having overcome death. That is, death can have no power anymore over that person. That's what resurrection means. It means that one has now become unable to die, immortal, because death itself has been overcome, has been conquered. It's not going into the land of the dead and then coming back out only to die again. It's to go into death and then come out on the other side, alive, unable to die again. That's what resurrection means in the Bible. It's it's a kind of life that we can't fully understand because we've not been raised from the dead, but it is to be very much alive. It's to be very much in a body, but a body that is now immortal. So what then is the implication? Just think of it. How great is his love for you? That he died not just to set you free from a power that only increased sin. He died not just because he loves you, even while you're an enemy. He died to unite you to himself. But how great is his love that he united you to one who could no longer die. It means that this new relationship into which we have now come, right now, by faith in Christ, is a relationship that's eternal. There's no death that's going to set you free. It means you've been united to a spouse that is wonderful, amazing, can only bring you joy, and he'll never die. He's immortal. You've been united to Christ by faith in a union that can never become dissolved. It means that this relationship is one that you can rest in, secure. Now, the last phrase of verse 4 goes on to tell us that the whole purpose in our dying to the law, being united to the resurrected Christ, is, here's what he says, in order that we may bear fruit for God. This purpose or goal is the same goal that was, in fact, intended when the law was originally given. The law was given with the goal of bearing fruit for God. But it was a goal that under the law could not be realized because of the corrupting power of sin. As long as we're bound to sin by the law, there can be no fruit for God. There there could be no life, only death. But now... But now, if you've been united, if you've been united to one who's been raised from the dead, the door has now been opened to the life that you, whether you know it or not, you truly desire, that you long for every day of your life, a life of bearing fruit for God. Now, what does he mean by bearing fruit? Back in Romans 6.21, Paul asked his readers to reflect on the kind of fruit they were getting 
when they lived their lives as slaves of sin. And then he stated that to be a slave of God means that the fruit you get, this is Romans 6, 21, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Romans 6, 22. So fruit is a way of speaking about the products of your life. Again, we see here then that God is not interested in merely saving souls, but in restoring our very lives so that, Paul, as Paul says elsewhere, you can live a life. Listen, this is Colossians 1.10. You can live a life fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. <laughs> Like the work you're going to go do tomorrow or next week or that conversation you're going to have around the Thanksgiving table this week that you're nervous about. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's the life you want. Whether you know it or not, that's a a good life. And it's a life that you simply cannot have as long as you are still bound to that abusive spouse, the power of sin, held to that power by the law. Verse 5 points this out. Until we are united to Christ, Paul says, we are only living in the flesh. Now, this is a phrase that is easily misunderstood all through the Bible because it, it, the flesh in the Bible means lots of different things. So it's, it can be very confusing. But clearly Paul does not mean right here the, li- the time in which we are physically alive. To be in the flesh here is the time before we are released from the law through union with Christ. It, it refers, yes, to the time prior to becoming a Christian. Absolutely. But that's probably not what Paul first had in mind. What does he mean in Romans 7 verse 5 when he spoke about our life in the flesh, while we were in the flesh? And it's probably better to think of it more properly as the time prior to the coming of Christ. So obviously we there is not like just you as an individual because you weren't alive, you weren't actually living then. He's talking about two different eras, two different periods in history, two different times, two different covenants in redemptive history. So Paul invites his readers to reflect back on the story of God. He refl- you're supposed to think about how the Bible has unfolded. And it's common, of course, even in our day, for many people to Remember the good old days of the past, to idealize life in a previous generation, and to wish to reclaim life the way it was back then. But notice what Paul says. In this case, Paul says, the good old days? Are you kidding me? Who wants to go back then? Who wants to go back and live there when when this has come? When a new era has dawned, when a new covenant has been inaugurated, why would you want to go back and live under the terms of the old covenant when the new has come? That's what he's saying. That time while we were in the flesh, while we were under the law. This is real progressivism, by the way. This is really being progressive. The law of Moses 
only aroused our sinful passions and energized them to produce in us, he says, fruit for death. That's what the Old Testament did. That's what the Old Covenant did. Far from being the hope of the world, life lived as a faithful Jew in strict obedience to God's law was not bringing about the promise of God to bring peace to earth, to bring restoration to the world. We'll see this even more in the next two weeks. But Israel, who was supposed to be the hope of the world, the promise that God would restore all things through his covenant people, things were not going well. Now, this is an astonishing and controversial thing for a Jew to say, especially in the first century. Here is the claim. This is why Paul, many people said, he's preaching a strange doctrine. What's he talking about? This is controversial. Paul is claiming... Listen, if you just try to put yourself in the first century as a Jew trying to live obedient to God. Paul is saying that life under the law, far from safeguarding people from the corruption that is in the world, actually takes you deeper into its deathly decay. That's going to get you stoned. You start preaching stuff like that. Like in a synagogue, you're in trouble. Paul's gospel claims that one can no more find life in a relationship to the Mosaic law than you could have found life if you had stayed in Egypt and not participated in the Exodus. You see the story? Do you see the illustration? In other words, Paul is saying, he's speaking to people who know the law, Romans 7.1. You know the law. You know the story of God, right? You know your Old Testament, yes? So put yourself back in Egypt. Imagine you're there. And imagine on the night of the Exodus, when all the instructions have been laid out, imagine you say, I don't think I'm going. I'm just going to hang out, see if things get a little better. Maybe Pharaoh will lighten up a little bit. After everybody else leaves, you know that is, that is going to be your death. The only way out from this bondage is you got to follow Moses, go to cross that Red Sea, and into a new life, right? Paul's using that illustration. It's underneath the surface right here. He's got, this is the story that's resonating in your mind. And all through this sermon, you're probably thinking, what does the law have to do with me? I mean, what's this? It's the story of God. It's what God has been unfolding. In other words, he's saying to you and me, just like Moses was saying to Israel, as the plagues were unfolding in Egypt, here is your salvation. And you have a choice to make. You can follow in this new exodus and live in an amazing new relationship or you can stay and perish. The new exodus has come, which has released us from the law. Verse six says, look what it says. We have now died to that which held us captive. We've left Egypt and our old life of slavery there so that, he says, we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now, these words remind us of what Paul has already said at the end of chapter 2 in Romans. If you remember Romans 2.29, he said a really strange thing. He said, a Jew, that is, the true people of God, is one inwardly. 
And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. The spirit, not the letter. <laughs> just, so you're, just so we're clear, Paul is not advocating that the freedom we have now in the new exodus is the freedom to live by the spirit of the law rather than by the letter of the law. In other words, interpret for yourself what God really wants. The word spirit is a reference to the Holy Spirit, not to intentionality. It's not the spirit of the law, but the spirit instead of the law that the gospel sets us free to live by. Once again, this is not in contradiction to the law of God, but is rather its promised fulfillment. It's what the Old Testament had promised would come. It's what the Old Testament had predicted. The Old Testament itself, in the Old Covenant itself, there was the promise that a new covenant is coming. And when it comes, don't stay in Egypt. Don't miss out. Don't think things are going to get better for you under this old system. There's freedom. There's freedom. It's the arrival of a new covenant. It's the end of Israel's true captivity and exile. It is, in short, the arrival of the kingdom of God. So this is Paul's gospel. No wonder he wasn't ashamed of it. No wonder he wasn't ashamed to preach it. Everywhere. To the ends of the earth. No wonder Paul was not afraid to go and bear good news. Because you see, don't you, brothers and sisters, that if this is, in fact, the end of exile for Israel, if it is the arrival of the kingdom of God, all with the coming of Jesus, the new exodus has dawned, then it is therefore the end of exile for all of creation including you and me. It's the promise of the Bible. The promise of the Bible is, look, look, once Israel, once the true Israel is reconstituted and restored, once their captivity has finally ended, so also will salvation come to all the nations of the world, to people from every tribe and language and people. And this salvation is right now on offer to everyone who will come, who will participate in the new exodus, which releases us from that which held us captive and gives us the promise of the Holy Spirit. Paul must have believed it because here's what he said in Galatians chapter 5. You can turn there if you want. I'm guessing you are at least somewhat familiar with many of these verses. Here's what Paul says to you. If you, if you participate in this new exodus, if you follow the true and better Moses, Israel's Messiah, the Lord Jesus, then you have now entered into a new creation now. You are already in the kingdom of God now, in this world, 
This isn't like you just imagine some alternate reality. No, you go to work tomorrow, a citizen of God's kingdom, where Jesus is Lord, where every knee bows to King Jesus. And here's what Paul says. You want to be practical? You say, well, this is all just doctrine. This is incredibly practical. Here's what he says. Paul says, Galatians 5.16, that if you keep in step with the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Galatians (laughs) 5.16. It's just plain as day. If you are led by the Spirit, Galatians 5.18 says, you are not under the law. Sound familiar? You live in a new reality, under a new covenant, with the Spirit of God fully operating. And then he says, set free from what he calls the works of the flesh. And you can see a list of things that he has in mind. You will instead produce what he calls the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. Against which he says, there's no law like everybody wants. Those things, love, joy, peace, patience. You like this kind of life? Goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Would you like that? Would, that, would you like those to be the, the fruit of your life? Full of love, joy, peace, patience. Might need some of that this week. You know. Okay, maybe, maybe not. Kindness, a little bit. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's the promise, in fact, you go on to read in Galatians chapter 6 of a and these people like that bear that kind of fruit start getting together. It's a new society of people. One in which, as Paul says in Galatians 6, 2, they bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That, that's what the church is supposed to look like. That's exactly the new society of people coming together, keeping in step with the Spirit, getting a taste of the kingdom of God, which is yet to come in its fullness. But it's already here now. That's what is offered to you. That's what salvation is. All found in Israel's Messiah, in Jesus Christ. This is the hope of the world. It's what everybody's looking for. Here's the real answer to the power of sin, which wrecks havoc on all of society. Here is the answer to our polarized politics, to our bickering and backstabbing, to our intolerance of one another, and to our need to always be right. Salvation does not come by everyone being conformed to me or to you or to anyone else other than to the one who was dead and is now alive. That's where salvation comes. We don't need a new law, but neither do we need to abolish the one that God has already given. What we need instead is to be united to the one who has been raised from the dead. In him, we find the fulfillment of the law and so the freedom from that which held us captive to sin. In him, we find the hope of the world. Jesus did not come to offer to the world a new religion. Religion, so long as it is only a set of rules to follow, will not give you any life. Instead, Jesus came to offer to the world life. 
the life that the law simply has no power to create. In Jesus and in Jesus alone, you will find the one you're looking for. You'll find the new relationship. In fact, you'll find the one that you were made for. Let us pray.